the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Christ's sacrifice is accepted by God, the proof of which is the empty tomb and his resurrection. So why doesn't Jesus just stay on earth? Why does he find himself going back to heaven? Let's talk about it. The ascension of Jesus. Over the past week, we have spent a lot of time taking a look at the importance of the ascension of Jesus. And today, we begin winding down not only our look at the ascension, but this marvelous journey we've been on in the book of Luke. We would invite you to join us here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner as we focus once again on the ascension of Jesus, part four. We're in Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Well, after about five years, we have come to the last sermon of the gospel according to Luke. And for me, leaving Luke is like literally leaving an old friend. And as I've told you, I'm going to begin next Sunday, Lord willing, to be looking at the book of Job. Luke's Luke's gospel ends triumphantly and gloriously in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. That event was prophesied in the Old Testament long before it actually took place. And we read one of the prophecies in Psalm 68, verses 17 and 18. Psalm 68 is a psalm of praise to God for the display of His goodness and His mercy in the history of the people of Israel. And most particularly for delivering his people from their enemies and exalting them to places of honor and security. In fact, in Psalm 68, David beautifully pictures God defeating his enemies in figurative language. He speaks of God ascending to a supreme and high place of honor and power, surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angelic chariots. He pictures him as a mighty conqueror who has triumphed over all of his enemies, and now he is rich with the spoils of war that he is going to distribute to his brave soldiers. And then following his soldiers, there's a long line of prisoners of war that he has taken captive. When we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we see Paul quoting Psalm 68 and applying it directly to the ascension of Jesus Christ even though Jesus isn't even mentioned by name in Psalm 68. He applies this passage to the ascended Jesus, for he sees it as the fulfillment of that picture David has drawn. In fact, in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 7, Paul roots all the gifts of the Spirit that he gives to the church in the ascension of Jesus Christ to God's right hand. And notice what he does in verses 7 and 8. 
But to each one of us, grace gifts or gifts of grace were given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul quotes this passage, and he says, basically, here's proof that the ascension of Jesus Christ is the basis and source of all the gifts we have of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to live with him in this world. And in verse 8, quoting Psalm 68, it says, this ascended Christ, this triumphant Christ led captive a host of captives. It's taking the imagery from Psalm 68. And I'm sure you've seen uh, enough movies where Romans and Greeks, after conquering other nations, the generals are in glorious chariots and their soldiers are following in great pomp and circumstance. And behind them is a great wealth that they have captured in victory. And then following that are lines of, of wounded and tired captives of war that will soon be used as slaves. Well, that's the picture that he is now applying to Christ. Now, the question is, who are these captives? It says here, the triumphant Christ is leading a host of captives. Who are these captives? Take your pick. There are basically two interpretations, and I actually myself think they're both pretty good. The first is his enemies. He has just whipped all of his enemies. They will never be a threat against him again. They will never rise up against him again. They are all prisoners of war. He has defeated them. There will, they will be no obstacle to his kingdom because his victory is absolute. Or that vast hope of captives that he has taken could be his people that were captives and slaves of Satan, which he has now set free. And now they join his great army as those liberated by the ascended Christ. Take your pick. Notice the second thing Paul says in the last part of verse 8. He says, this Christ gives gifts to men. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Do you see any difference with Paul's quoting there of Psalm 68? That is not what David said in Psalm 68. David didn't say that the ascended God would give gifts to men. It said he would take gifts from men. So now was Paul mistaken? Did he have a lapse of memory? Why did he say this? Psalm 68 says Christ received gifts from or among men. And remember, this is a picture. It's not literal here. Christ literally doesn't receive gifts from anyone. He's self-sufficient. And he doesn't stand in need of anything. This is a picture. Those who gave gifts to him are the defeated. They give to him the spoils of war. But when Paul quotes it, he gives his own little interpretation. And instead of Christ receiving gifts from men, he says Christ gave gifts to men. Well, he's not mistaken in his 
interpretation, beloved. Because when you remember the picture, to receive gifts and to give gifts are correlative ideas. Why does a conqueror take spoils of war and tribute? One reason is so he can distribute those spoils among his courageous soldiers. He receives them to give them. So Paul is applying the implications of Psalm 68 here. He is applying the implication of Christ's triumph and and exaltation, substituting one idea for another. In other words, the exalted Christ receives rich gifts to help his faithful people. That's the picture here. There's a proverb that actually explains this. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Well, there's another problem with Paul referring to Psalm 68, verses 17 and 18 unto Christ, and that is that Psalm 68 is not a messianic psalm. David does not directly or does not directly refer to the Messiah, but to Jehovah who triumphs over his enemies. But here the Apostle Paul applies Psalm 68 directly to Jesus Christ and argues that they must refer to Jesus Christ even though David never mentions him. So how can he do that and still do justice to the Old Testament text in its original context? Here's how. The Old Testament is full of types of Christ. That is, incidents and passages and statements that are deliberately designed to point to a person, point a person to Christ. In some way, they resemble Christ, and they are deliberately designed to make you think of Christ in the New Testament. Psalm 68, then, is not only a striking analogy, it is a purposely designed prefiguring of Christ. Remember, Jesus said, the Old Testament talks about me. In other words, in the descent of Israel into Egypt and their deliverance from bondage and their triumph in the land of Canaan, in that Old Testament history, we see a prefiguring of the church in the New Testament. Jehovah's dealings with Israel pointed toward Christ's dealing with His church. The psalm, then, is not only a history of the conquest of Jehovah over his enemies in, of, of the enemies of Israel, It is a prophecy of the conquest of the Messiah. And secondly, don't forget, Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. Now, what are these gifts? Paul says that the reason Jesus ascended into heaven is that he might give to his church certain gifts. Then in context here, it talks about the indwelling spirit, that the spirit of God fills the church. Every Christian is spirit-filled. The moment any person is converted to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters his life, and he brings all the resources of God with him into your life so you can die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Those gifts are also included what we call the gifts of the Spirit. Now, there were certain supernatural extraordinary, miraculous gifts that were temporary, that they had to do with the founding of the church 2,000 years ago, like the gift of healing and tongue speaking, etc. But what I'm talking about are other gifts that are ordinary, not miraculous and not temporary. 
that we're to stay in the life of the church as long as the, as the church is here on earth. And you see all of those recorded in Romans 12. And those are spiritual gifts that enable us to minister to each other effectively. So as we minister to each other in the church, we all become stronger and our witness to the world becomes more effective. But then also in the text, we read in Ephesians 4, that among the gifts are the preaching, teaching offices of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, preachers. These are God's gifts to his people because he knows that without the teaching and preaching offices of the church, the church cannot adequately be equipped for its divinely assigned mission. The church cannot move toward maturity, and there will never be any unity in the body of Christ. So Christ ascended to graciously give his people the gift of the preaching, teaching offices of the church. Then look at verse 9. Paul makes a very simple argument. He says, if this Christ has ascended, then it presupposes that somewhere along the line he descended. That this ascending Christ, in his incarnation, in his humiliation, in gracious condescension, descended to earth. And after he accomplished his mission, conquered sin, Satan, and death, redeemed his people from their sins, then God exalted him by raising him from the dead, giving him a name which is above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father, and then lifted him up in the ascension to his own right hand where he would rule over everything. Look at the first part of verse 10. It does not say that Jesus ascended. It does say, I'm sorry, that Jesus ascended far above all the heavens. That is, as far above the whole universe. Everything in all creation is subjected to this ascended Redeemer. He is over everything. Look at the last part of verse 10. It says the reason Christ ascended far above all the heavens was that he might fill all things. Now, what does that phrase, fill all things, mean? Well, the Greek word can mean to fill, to fulfill, to render perfect, and to accomplish. So let's use all four of those definitions to try and explain what that phrase is getting at. First of all, it meant that he might fill the universe, not with his body, because if he did that, there'd be no room for the rest of us. But there are people who actually believe that. But it fills the universe with his presence and his power. His Holy Spirit fills the entire universe supernaturally with his presence and his power. He also ascended that he might fulfill all the prophecies and promises of God concerning the advance of His kingdom on earth to make sure they all come true. He also ascended to God's right hand that He might render everything perfect, that He might someday perfect what He has begun. And He has ascended to God's right hand that He might accomplish everything necessary to the consummation of His mediatorial work. 
So what it says in Ephesians 4 is that Jesus ascended to God's right hand far above everything in the universe, that he might fill the universe with his power and his presence, that the perfection of this universe would take place, and his accomplished purposes would happen. Now let's go to the actual historical account itself in Luke 24 and Acts 1. There you have the only two descriptions of what happened at the ascension anywhere in the Bible. Now there are plenty of allusions elsewhere, but these are the only two descriptions in Luke 24, 50 through 53 and Acts 1, 4 through 11, which we read a while ago. I want you to notice the phrases in verse 9 and 10 of Acts 1 that are used to describe Jesus' ascension. There are two kinds of phrases. It says, first of all, that he was lifted up. That is, someone else did this to him, and there are other phrases like, he was departing. That is, he was doing this himself. So this second phrase, he was departing, denotes that Christ's ascension into heaven was by his own power, as the exalted Lord of lords and King of kings. The first phrase, he was lifted up, that is, by God the Father, signifies that the act of God, it is the act of God rewarding him for his humiliation. Sometime read Psalm 2, because it says that because Jesus was willing to be hum humiliated and it took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, therefore, as a reward for his faithfulness, God highly exalted him and put him in the position of Lord. So, here you have Jesus ascending by his own power, and at the same time, it's an act of God the Father as a great reward for his humiliation. Now, what actually happened when Jesus ascended? Luke is concise, but he does tell us enough. Jesus physically ascended into the heavens. The ascension has reverence, reference to Jesus as a man. God does not actually ascend, nor does he descend, because he is everywhere. Luke is talking about the humanity of Christ. So in his ascension, Jesus physically left the earth and went into heaven, and he disappeared in a cloud while the apostles were watching him. So according to this description in the Bible, the ascension consisted of a change of place for Jesus in his humanity. In his humanity, he was on earth before his ascension, and after that, he was in heaven at God's right hand. It also consisted in a change in his human nature. It wasn't just a change of place. It was a change in his human nature because it was an advance in his exaltation. Remember, I've talked about the two phases in Christ's human divine life, his humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation was steps downward, beginning with his incarnation and his life under the law, being rejected by men, his suffering, his death, his burial. And then on the first day of the week, after his, his uh, crucifixion, God began the phases and steps of his exaltation. And he began exalting him with his resurrection and then continued to exalt him in glory and greatness and majesty and power even more in his ascension. 
And then even more when he took a seat at God's right hand, and then will supremely do so when Christ comes again in the clouds of glory. So this is an advance in his exaltation and in the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's ascension was a change of place as well as a change in his human nature. And both of these must be emphasized. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus passed through the heavens. Now use your imaginations. Jesus physically, not spiritually, meaning not metaphorically, but Jesus physically, as a man, passed through the heavens and entered into the holy place. That is the throne word of God, the immediate, actual, glorious presence of God himself. As a man, he had never been there. He had never been to heaven as a man. Can you imagine the impact on him? as he entered the very presence of God. Now understand that this ascension is not a fairy tale. Don't have your children put into the same category, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Peter Pan, and Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension was as historical as his incarnation, as historical as his virgin birth, his vicarious death, his bodily resurrection, and his second physical comping. It really took place, beloved. Also, the ascension of Jesus is one of the unrepeatable events of the gospel that lies at the very basis of our salvation. The gospel in Christianity is based on history, things that actually took place in history. It's not based on someone's wild ideas. It's not based on ideology. It's not based on philosophy. Unlike all of the other religions in the world, Christianity is based on history and actual events that took place in the life of Jesus and are unrepeatable. And without any of these, we cannot be saved. And they never, never need to be repeated. The incarnation of Christ, when he took upon himself human nature, is unrepeatable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His death on the cross, accomplishing our eternal redemption, is unrepeatable. Even though the Catholic Roman Catholic Church believes that when Mass is performed, Christ is sacrificed all over again on every altar in every Catholic Church throughout the world every time the Mass is performed. Well, of course, they say it's a bloodless sacrifice. But I ask you, what good is a bloodless sacrifice? Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Nevertheless, His death is once and for all unrepeatable. His resurrection is historical and unrepeatable. His ascension, historical, unrepeatable. As soon as Jesus went into heaven, he baptized the church with the Holy Spirit, historical, unrepeatable. All of these great events of the gospel are historical, and that is where we must put his ascension. Now, what does the ascension of Jesus mean for the church? Well, what's amazing to me is how the ascension of Jesus Christ is so neglected by the church today. 
I mean, out of all the books in my library, I have one on the subject called The Ascension of Christ. And that one was written in the 1800s. Now, if any of you know of any and they're of any worth whatsoever, please let me know. But this is one of the most neglected doctrines in all of Scripture. And yet, as you're going to see, it has a major emphasis in the Bible and is central to Christ being our Savior. And it impacts and adds meaning and significance to every other doctrine in the Bible. And its implications for worship in the Christian life and our status in this world. You can just go on and on and on. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.